We're going to continue our series tonight on uh, the gospel. We've been doing a series loosely based off of Scott McKnight's book, uh, The King Jesus Gospel, uh, and this is our third week um, in it. And tonight we're going to do a little interesting. The sermon's going to be kind of an art history class um, by someone who's probably least qualified to give an art history class. Um, I know nothing about um, the visual arts, at least through history, but I enjoy it, but I don't know anything. But uh, still, we're going to do an amateur history class uh, tonight. And I want to introduce uh, a form of art called anamorphosis. And uh, this is anamorphosis. Now, this is a side note. Um, Kelly Hayes has started to do our, our slides um, in place of Harry when he wants a break. And I made a joke with her the first time she did it. You know, we were talking about how she knows to put the slide up. And I told her that this would be the cue, that I would do a spin <laughs> and a point. And uh, she was upset that I never did it once the first time. So now I've done it at least once. Uh, maybe more. We'll see. But uh, I want to think about this idea of anamorphism. See, I'm an amateur. Uh, this is, um, anamorphism is something we're all familiar with. Uh, it's very popular and it, it looks, um, it, it takes place in a lot of different forms of art now. But what it is, is it is a, a uh, visual art where standing in one place, you see one thing, and if you change angles, you see something different. And this is uh, a very commonly referred to example. It's from the 16th century. It's from Hans Holbein the Younger, not to be confused with Hans Holbein the Older, uh, which I know you all were thinking of, but this is the younger one. Uh, but this painting on the left, if you just focus on the left, that's called, uh, it's a painting called The Ambassadors. And you see these two gentlemen in a meeting of some kind. And you see this really weird, uh, just random little line, you know, on the, on the bottom. And that line, if you turn all the way far left of the painting, you would see that skull that you see on the right. You'd see very clearly defined, you'd see a skull. So on one angle, you, don't, you can't tell what it is. It's just a random little mark on the painting. And if you were to turn and change your angle, you'd see this, this perfect little skull. And he was making some kind of a political comment, commentary on uh, the times is what he was doing with this. But So there's that form of anamorphis, anamorphosis. There's another form um, where you use mirrors. Now, this is pretty cool. So you... If you just were to take the mirror off and look at the page, you're like, this is a really weird kind of trippy painting, uh, drawing of something. But if you place that mirror there and look at the mirror, all of a sudden it's a perfectly, you know, um, proportioned uh, drawing. Uh, so that's another form of it. And then uh, we also see it in sculptures. So, you know, top left is uh, in this gallery is what you would see as you walk up to it. And as you walk up to the sculpture at a certain angle, it's slowly forming. At the bottom left, you can see what like, maybe it's going to be. And then when you get just directly in front of it, you see the bottom right picture there. You see that it's just this perfect eye. Um, and one of the earliest, uh, <laughs> according to my quick research, one of the earliest uh, was actually something called Leonardo's eye. Um, and it's a drawing but, uh, or a painting, but um, it's actually an eye. So this is actually a sculpture form of almost that same thing. And then we've also seen it in street art. I don't have an example of it, but you know, you've seen videos maybe recently where people have done like sidewalk art that looks like you're about to like walk into a hole or something because it's designed to where if you're walking this way, it'll look like you're about to fall into a hole and people actually fall for it. Uh, and so this is called anamorphosis. It's something 
we're probably all familiar with. A lot of the sculptures, um, what I've seen, but I couldn't find an example of, is uh, I've seen little videos where, you know, the sculpture on one side is like a perfect square, and if you just walk over to the side, come at it from the west, uh, it's a circle, and it's just really trippy as you go in between, and it's something different, but it's the same sculpture. Tonight, um, you, you saw the title, we're going to look at the gospel according to Jesus. Last week, we looked at the gospel according to the Old Testament, uh, and Bob preached for us, and it was tremendous. And we're going to build on top of that uh, tonight uh, as we kind of build our definition of the gospel. We're going to consider what was the gospel according to Jesus. But to do that, we have to talk about these four books that we call the gospels, that we refer to as the gospels. Um, And I want to suggest that these four books, what we call the gospels, give us an anamorphic uh, view of the one gospel. Uh, here's the trivia part, and I remembered now, Kelly, why I left this blank line. You were wondering, well, this blank slide, this was why. So if you take that off on the blank, thank you, sorry, this was why. Uh, trivia. Does anyone know um, those four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call them uh, throughout history the four evangelists. Does anyone know the four creatures that have come in Christian art that have come to represent the four evangelists? You can shout random ones out if you know them. A lion. A bull, yep, or bull or an ox, an eagle. Do you know the fourth? Kangaroo. Good guess. That's the gospel according to Australia. That's different. Uh, <laughs> um, the fourth one's hard to remember because it's a man or an angel. All the creatures are winged, by the way. So uh, it's a winged lion, a winged ox, a winged uh, man, which is why it's often referred to as an angel. Um, but yeah, so you can go to that slide now. I'll do my twist. And, uh, this is a, and, and now you see this all throughout church history. And some of you guys who know more about uh, ancient art than I do, uh, you could tell me the first time we see this because I looked and looked and I, I was trying to find where's the first, like surely there was a first piece of art that used this because this isn't obvious. Now, these four creatures, they come from Scripture. They come from Ezekiel. And then they're reused again in the book of Revelation as the four creatures that are in the throne room of God. But nowhere in Scripture is it clearly referring them to the four evangelists. Um, And so these have come to represent the four evangelists, and they've even taken on meanings with each one. So uh, Matthew is the the man or the angel. And he uh, is that because the book of Matthew opens up with the genealogy. And the book of Matthew is going to emphasize uh, Jesus' humanity, so he's the, the man. Uh, Mark is the winged lion, which is on the top right there, but you can barely tell that it's a lion. It's the skinniest lion ever. Um, but Mark is the, the lion uh, representing royalty, and Mark's gospel emphasizes uh, that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the king, the kingship of Jesus. Uh, Luke is the winged ox or the winged bull, um, and that emphasizes uh, sacrifice, or service. Uh, the book of Luke opens with sacrifice. Zechariah is making sacrifices, which we heard his song. We prayed that as our call to worship today. Uh, we hear his, his offering of sacrifice. Uh, Mary is, is having a sacrifice of service as she says yes to the angel. And then, of course, the book ends with the atoning sacrifice in Christ. And then John, St. John is the, the eagle, a winged eagle, not just any eagle, but a winged one. That was a joke. They all have wings. Uh, no. Uh, this is my favorite one. John is the eagle because at the time they believed 
eagles could look directly into the sun. And so John, uh, he gets the gift of, of hindsight. He's the last gospel written. And we all know John's gospel reads very differently. Um, it's, it's separated. The other three are the synoptic gospels. And John's gospel is very different. And it's poetic. And it's, it uses a lot of different symbolism. And so it's this idea that John's looking deep into the mysteries of Christ that the other three gospels aren't looking at. Kind of a fun meaning behind that. But as I said, these symbols for the four evangelists, they show up everywhere in, in Christian art. Um, this is the Book of Kells. This is in uh, Trinity College in Dublin. I've had the chance to see this, which is really cool. Uh, it's from the 9th century. Very cool story behind it that we don't have time to get into, but that's just one of many, many examples. Uh, the four, these four creatures also show up in architecture in cathedrals a lot. If you go look at architecture, a lot of pulpits have the four evangelists there because you're going to be preaching the gospel from the pulpit. And then another fun image I wanted to point to is uh, Dante's uh, Purgatorio. If you uh, ever read Dante's Divine Comedy, there's this part at the end uh, where uh, they're on the earthly paradise and there's this procession. It's called the procession of the triumphant church. And the church is represented by a carriage and there's all these figures that all have meanings uh, surrounding the carriage. But it mentions, and I don't have time to go through them all, but they're pretty cool. But it mentions these four creatures that represent the Gospels are guarding the carriage. They're on either side, either corner of the, of the chariot, and uh, they're, they're guard, guarding the church, which is just an interesting image to hold in your mind as we go through this whole sermon, that the Gospels guard the church in a way. They protect us from going too far uh, off the path. Uh, they, they guard us. And so I have one more image that I just really liked. It's a little creepy, but it's the four, and they they're all, all have their animals assigned to them. So the four evangelists uh, have been given a very important place in Christian art. And the reason that is is because they've given us the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have reached through time as though time is no barrier at all, and they have evangelized to you and to me and to the church by giving us the story of Jesus. And so uh, tonight, as we continue through this series of, on the gospel, you know, week one, we considered uh, a gospel culture versus a salvation culture. Uh, salvation culture is what we get when we reduce the gospel down to one line or quick phrase. And a gospel culture is when you look at the gospel in its, in its fullness, the gospel we get in scripture. And last week, we, we looked at how the Old Testament is an essential part, that the gospel fulfills something. It fulfills the story of Israel. And so tonight, we're going to think about, first, why we call these four books gospels, uh, what that means, and then we're going to look at uh, the gospel according to Jesus himself. Uh, but first, let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let's, let's start tonight by continuing to think about these, these four books we call Gospels. It's really important that we know that Gospels are not a genre in Scripture. Meaning, you know, Matthew didn't sit down to write a Gospel. I want to write one of those Gospels. Uh, it's not a genre. It's not a literary genre. There's one Gospel. Matthew sought to write the gospel, not a gospel. It's not a genre. He, he's writing the gospel. Mark, 
is writing the gospel. McKnight um, really makes a point of this in his book, uh, The King Jesus Gospel, that it might not even be wise for us to refer to these as the gospels, as if there's, there's multiple gospels. There's one gospel. This is why traditionally we call them the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to John, right? It's the gospel. It's not four different gospels. One gospel, four writers. Uh, it's one gospel, four different interpretations. And all of them are telling the saving story of Jesus. St. Augustine, in one of his writings, actually even corrected himself on this. He said, uh, in one of his writings, he said, in the four gospels, or better, in the four books of the one gospel. So this might seem like it doesn't matter that much, but it's, it's a pretty important place to start. There's one gospel with an anamorphic witness to it. We can see in the four books, uh, we can see the gospel from different angles, but the, it's the same thing. It's the same thing in the center. It doesn't change. It's just different angles. I think we see this if we just go read the first line of each gospel. And this actually, I think you see those four uh, symbolic creatures in these, the first line of each one. Real quickly, uh, Mark begins, and Mark we, we think of as uh, short and to the point. And by the way, I'm going in order of uh, when they were written, not as we get them in our Bible. So Mark was first. Uh, and he just says simply, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. Like I said, he emphasizes Son of God, kingship, within the first line. Matthew begins, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Matthew begins, and we know he's about to begin a genealogy. He begins thinking about the humanity of Christ. Now, Luke, people say Luke is wordy, and I don't know why. Um, <laughs> this is all one sentence. Uh, Luke begins with, Since media have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Now Luke also, we, we like to emphasize that Luke is, is very interested in the details and very interested in accuracy, and he says it right there. He mentions the eyewitnesses, very carefully investigating everything, uh, but there's Luke. And then finally John Amazing John, his first line, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a guy looking directly into the sun, <laughs> directly into the mysteries of Christ. Um, it's either beautiful to you, or you're like, that's kind of trippy, like, what is he saying? Um, but John is just looking directly into the, the mysteries of Christ. So we see this even in the first lines. These are different angles of one gospel. So as we've considered what the gospel is throughout this series, tonight uh, I just want to make it clear what the gospel is. Uh, the gospel is the saving story of Jesus. The answer has been right under a nose the whole time. Who would have thought that the books called gospels might actually be the gospel, that the story of Jesus is the gospel? And if we want to formalize this into a comprehensive definition, uh, then we would have to make it a longer run-on sentence. We could say that the gospel is the saving story of Jesus 
that fulfills the story of Israel and culminates in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God. This is the gospel according to Scripture. This is the gospel according to the, the oral tradition of the gospel that we looked at in week one uh, from 1 Corinthians 15. All these elements are there in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, this is the gospel according to the first apostles preaching it in the first pages of Acts. If you go read the first few sermons in Acts, it's going to have all of these components in there. I encourage you to, to do so. Um, it's been helpful for me to, to test the theory of this whole sermon by reading those. All of this is in there. Um, it's a saving and fulfilling story. It's fulfilling something. And the story of Jesus. It's his whole story. And the cool thing about defining the gospel as the saving story of Jesus is that it, it forces us to interact with that story a little bit. And so as we read the story of Jesus, we're going to find these different themes that often we call the gospel. We're going to find the theme of, of Israel's fulfillment. We'll find that on every page. Uh, we'll find the kingdom of heaven on earth. Uh, we'll find the enthronement of Christ as our king. And all four stories are going to usher us into the last week of Jesus' life to his death, his work of death and resurrection and ascension. And that is something we're going to talk about a little bit more uh, next week. I think it's safe to call that the culmination of, of the story of Jesus, or uh, the work of death and resurrection. It's only from this story that we know anything of God's plan for salvation. If you remember the, the well, both last couple weeks, we've thrown up that slide of, from McKnight's book of uh, the, the blocks, and it's like the Old Testament, the story of Israel, the story of Jesus. And then you have the plan of salvation, and sometimes we just call that the gospel. But those are more referred to as like the benefits of the gospel, and that's all kinds of things to look at there. We only know that. We only know the plan of salvation from the gospel, from reading the story of Jesus. What we heard uh, Joanna read tonight from Second Corinthians, uh, I loved Paul's words there, um, talking about we are now we now have open hearts. Our hearts are wide open. That, that's a benefit of the gospel. That is salvation happening in Paul and what he's sharing with others. But we start with Christ. We don't start at the benefits and then throw in Christ at the end and throw in the fact that he died and resurrected. That's great, but here's, here's all that we're getting from salvation. You start at Christ and you, you get to that. That's why we call these four evangelists evangelists. Um, they're evangelizing to us by telling us the story of Jesus, the good news that is Jesus. Finally, I think John helps us um, sink this in real well when he, uh, at the end of his gospel, tells us the reason for his writing. And I think I have this as well. Uh, in John chapter 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Another interesting part uh, of place where we can see this idea, it's a really odd place to, to mention, but uh, if you'll remember when Jesus, uh, has, when his feet are washed, uh, when Mary washes his feet, um, after that happens and the, the, the disciples question him, Jesus says, uh, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done today will be told in remembrance of her. 
what he's saying there is when the gospel is shared, she will she has a, a small part in it. And so if we take that seriously, then the gospel is the story of Jesus because she has a part. So if we can accept this, if we can accept that the gospel is the saving story of Jesus, then we are left with this question, did Jesus preach the gospel? Did Jesus preach himself? And the short answer is yes. Uh, He did. He did preach himself. He preached this definition of the gospel. Now, here at Wheatland, uh, we're pretty good uh, Dallas Willardians. Um, And so it's not going to surprise us um, if I say Jesus' biggest theme. If I were to ask, what what was Jesus' biggest theme when he preached? What topic did he talk about most? A good Dallas Willardian will say, well, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which is true. And this has led to a lot of interesting talk among theologians, you know, questions like, uh, can you find kingdom of God language in Paul? Because it feels like you can't. And can you find uh, justification by faith language in Jesus's words? Because sometimes it feels like you can't. It feels like, are they talking about different things? Where are they getting their language from? And so... It, this is true that Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven more than, more than anything else. Um, Jesus tells so many parables about the kingdom. Um, Matthew 13 alone, I believe, has eight, just eight parables, just saying the kingdom of heaven is like. His longest discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, is often referred to as what life looks like in the kingdom. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, his longest teaching, says nothing about... Um, his death. It doesn't really say anything by, about justification by faith. It, it just talks about the kingdom. He keeps talking about the kingdom. And so it's, it's an interesting idea if we take this analogy of an anamorphic uh, witness to the, to the gospel that we, we are all seeing a different angle of the same gospel. What if Jesus' angle of the gospel, seeing as though he's at the very, very center of it, it's his story, What if his angle is the kingdom of heaven, which he himself is embodying at every step? Jesus, as he is perfectly fulfilling and embodying the gospel, speaks of the kingdom that we can only see through him. A kingdom by which the only way is himself. He believed that the kingdom of God was now breaking into history in himself. And so it's important when we invoke this kingdom language... Uh, that we remember that, that Jesus is at the very center of it. It's not um, a new philosophical idea that he wants separate from himself. Jesus is at the center of the kingdom. He's the king. The kingdom has a king. Jesus preaches himself. Now, Jesus preaches himself in many other ways as well. He points to himself often. And he does, in fact, kind of preach his own uh, death and resurrection. In many different ways. Uh, I think the way McKnight put it that I really liked is he doesn't so much predict his death and resurrection as he does interpret it. He interprets it before it's even happened, which is a cool thought to hold on to. But I just want to look at two uh, as we wrap up these ideas tonight. I just want to look at two real quickly, um, two places where Jesus preaches himself, where he just points to himself. Um, they're both going to be familiar to you, and they're both in uh, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke. Um, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to go there. But it's going to be actually a story from the beginning of Jesus' ministry and one from the end. The first one is Luke chapter 4, and I do have the words of that up here. 
although it's quite small, isn't it? <laughs> um, if any of you are eagles, you can see. Uh, this will be familiar to you, and I, I, if you can't read I encourage you to look it up um, with you as well. But it says this, Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll, Jesus is in the temple. He's handed the, prof- the, the scroll. It says, Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There's a lot rolled into that word uh, anointed uh, that's at the beginning of that, that Isaiah passage. Um, we know that a Messiah means anointed one. There's a lot rolled into that word. He's claiming right there, he's claiming his kingship uh, in the kingdom of heaven. And if we didn't know better, uh, we would read this and think, Jesus is kind of a, an egomaniac. Like, he reads these words from the beloved prophet Isaiah, and he's like, yep, that's me. That's me, folks. Um, this is a weird, <laughs> really weird analogy, but every time I, I read uh, passages where Jesus embodies another person's words, like David's or, or uh, a prophet's, I think of this little part in um, the show The Office uh, where Michael Scott, he has a, an office, and on, on the back, he, he has the words... Uh, this quote from Wayne Gretzky, it says, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, dash, Wayne Gretzky, and then another dash, Michael Scott. Like, he's like claiming that it's him that's saying it, even though it's not, it's clearly not. He's just taking the credit. It's somehow also him. In this passage, it feels like uh, Jesus is not very original. <laughs> he's, he's taking Isaiah's words and throwing the dash, uh, this is me, this is all me. But this is an example where at the beginning of his ministry, where Jesus is preaching himself as the good news. I am this good news that Isaiah is uh, proclaimed so long ago. As I said, there's many other instances where Jesus preaches himself. Uh, Sometimes it's in the form of a question, like when he asks, who do you say that I am? That's a really, a really clever way to point to yourself and explain, interpret who you are. Uh, But I want to jump to this last one, and the last one is going to be in Luke chapter 24. This is at the end of Jesus' ministry, and it's after his resurrection. And we know this story as the road to Emmaus, so we're probably pretty familiar with it. You've got uh, two men walking to the village of Emmaus, and uh, they're just outside of Jerusalem, and they're deep in conversation, and they're going over everything that has happened in the last week. And in the middle of their talk, Jesus shows up, and he questions them. And they... At first, they're like, who are you that you don't know what's been happening here uh, the last week? And, and then they begin to tell him. He asks, well, what happened? Tell me. And they say, the things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene. Of course, they don't recognize it's Jesus. They say, he was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and word. Blessed, this is the message version, by the way. Blessed by both God and all the people. Then our high priests and leaders betrayed him got him sentenced to death and crucified him. And we had our hopes up that he was the one, the one about to deliver Israel. 
And it is now the third day since it happened. But now some of our women have completely confused us. Early this morning, they were at the tomb and couldn't find his body. They came back with the story that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our friends went off to the tomb to check and found it empty, just as the women said. But they didn't see Jesus. And then Jesus responds to them. So I love that, um, according to our definition, this guy has just accidentally proclaimed the words of the gospel. Uh, he summed up this story and, uh, with all these different components in, there, in those words. Jesus says to them, you're so thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer, and only then enter into his glory? Then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in scripture that referred to him. We have this another instance of Jesus just pointing to himself. He's preaching himself. And I, I mean, this builds on our message from last week so well. It's undeniable that for Jesus, the good news is stemming out of the story of Israel. He goes through the scriptures and points at himself. So from beginning to end, Jesus does in fact preach himself. He points to himself, his life as the fulfillment of the story of Israel and to his life as God's plan of salvation. And then we know the next part of the story, I'm sure. Um, this is the part of the story that is often preached about and connected with, with the Eucharist, that Jesus is invited to go and dine with them, and he breaks the bread, and then that's when they recognize that it's Jesus. But then Jesus disappears, and they run and they tell the apostles about it. And as they're telling them, Jesus appears again. And in this chapter, Jesus does a lot of like disappearing and appearing in rooms. Jesus appears again and he says, peace be with you. And they're in disbelief and he offers his physical body. He offers the wounds as evidence. And then he asks for food and he even eats in front of them. More evidence. This is really him in the flesh. It's not a spiritual body of Jesus. It's, it's him. And then Jesus says this. And this is a cool part of the, the passage that I often uh, forget. He says, everything I told you while I was with you comes to this. All the things written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms have to be fulfilled. He went on to open their understanding of the word of God, showing them how to read their Bibles this way. He said, you can see now how it is written that this, the Messiah suffers, rises from the dead on the third day, and then a total life change through the forgiveness of sins is all proclaimed in his name to all nations, starting from here, from Jerusalem. You are the first to hear and see it. You're the witnesses. What comes next is very important. I am sending what my father promised to you. So stay here in the city until he arrives, until you're equipped with power from on high. Jesus, after this whole thing, he commissions the, the apostles to be witnesses of this fulfilling and saving story of Jesus. I want us to think about uh, as we close, um, a gospel culture, as we've been talking about in this series, a gospel culture is going to revolve itself around the life of Jesus. I say it often, but one of my favorite things about Wheatland is that we, we submit ourselves to the church calendar. And something that that forces us to do is it forces us to go through the life of Jesus every year, Advent to Easter. And we do it slowly. 
marinating on the story. Uh, we, don't, we don't speed to the end. We, we go through the whole life of Jesus. Uh, many of us have probably had this experience. I, I remember this last Advent, I went to a service. I won't say the church, but I was there to see someone do a part of the service. And the preacher had about 10 minutes. It, this was the week before Christmas. And the preacher had about 10 minutes to just give a thought about Christmas. And he used about a minute and a half of that to talk about Jesus being born, the incarnation. And then he jumped uh, to the cross uh, for the other nine minutes. And I just, it hit me. I was like, you know, I think God coming in the flesh, I think it's a beautiful and rich enough idea to sit for more than a minute on um, you don't have to jump to the cross. This is Christmas. Let's, let's think about the incarnation. That's an incredibly deep and mysterious idea. And so I, I like that we, we do revolve ourselves around the life of Jesus um, here in many ways. But as we think about a gospel culture, the part I also want to push uh, to us here at Wheatland is that a gospel culture, as it revolves around the life of Jesus, it cannot help but produce witnesses of that story of Jesus. Not only through our own efforts, but because if the story of Jesus has truly been a life change for us, then you cannot help but be a witness to it. You cannot help but bear witness to it. Sometimes through trying, sometimes through not trying, uh, we are witnesses to this story. It's changed our lives. It's the gospel. Last little piece of art history. Uh, There's an icon called Christ and Abbot Mena, uh, and it's an older one. It comes from the 8th century. And I came across this actually from a youth ministry book about six years ago, and I had never seen it before. And I remember going online to try to purchase it, and I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, and I've now, it's now at 8th day. It's now, I guess, grown in popularity or something. But um, St. Mena uh, was an abbot at a Benedictine monastery, uh, living around the 8th century, so he didn't walk uh, this world with, with Christ. Uh, but in this icon, um, I don't know if you can see it very well, but it's pretty simple. Uh, it's just Christ with his arms around Abbot Mena. But this, this icon really spoke to me when I found it, and it has continued over the years. And a couple of details of why are this. Uh, one, you'll see in Christ's hand, he's holding the Gospels. Uh, he's holding the Gospels in his arm. The, the full and rich Gospels. And you can barely see it. You might not see it at all. But Abbot Mena, in his right hand, he has a scroll. Just a little scroll. And uh, some think maybe it's the, um, the rule of St. Benedict. Because he was a Benedictine um, father and abbot. So he ran a, a monastery. Um, but I love this idea that, that Jesus has the full Gospel in his arms. And we might only have a a little bit, (laughs) our experience. Uh, The gospel according to Nathan is probably not the full gospel. Uh, But I have a little bit, even if it's a small scroll. I have a little bit. And then the other detail I really like is if you look, Jesus doesn't have feet uh, where he should have feet. And where Abbot Mena does have feet, there's no feet for Jesus. This is because uh, this icon is depicting a, a resurrected Jesus. Jesus, uh, as we are witnesses, he, we are his feet. With our, our little bit of the gospel, our little understanding, our angle of it, uh, we are given feet on this planet uh, to bear witness to Jesus' saving uh, life and story. 
culminating in his death and resurrection. And so, um, end with the words, I'm, I'm going to pull a, a Michael Scott move, but these words from Isaiah, I think Jesus can say to us, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you tonight and we thank you. We thank you for your, your saving grace. We thank you for the life change that you have brought in all of our lives. We ask that you continue to shape and form us into your people so that we might be uh, your feet and your hands uh, on our neighborhoods, on our streets, uh, in this room, uh, that we might learn what it means to be a gospel-shaped culture here at Wheatland. We pray this through the name of your, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.